The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, I see it down the Dunkirk. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Winnie Wong. Winnie has been at the forefront of almost every major progressive campaign in the US in this century. She was a leading organizer for Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Sandy and the Women's March on Washington. She co-founded People for Bernie and helped develop the viral hashtag Feel the Burn. After serving as a senior political advisor to Bernie Sanders' 2020 campaign, she's now an advisor of the Once Again PAC, which strives for, and I quote, the continuation of everything we've been fighting for. What that exactly entails, we will find out in this episode. Welcome to Radical, Vinny. Thank you for having me, Kath. Let's start with my standard introductory questions. First, what was the first sports team you ever supported? I can give you a short answer for a short question, and that answer is I've never supported a sports team. I was not um, athletically inclined, shall we say, in high school, and I'm still not athletically inclined. I was more, how shall we say it, artistic, <laughs> artistically inclined. <laughs> Second, what is your favorite political song? My standard response would be, can I have, you know, 10 favorite political songs, but you're going to say no. <laughs> so I had to really think about this. I would say that my favorite political song is by the late, great Sam Cooke, who wrote a song called Chain Gang. It's a song about the chain gang um, of America. And I was very young when I first heard it. I must have been like 11 or 12. I mean, I remember the, the environment very vividly. And I think it's very illustrative to me as a young person, even though I didn't really understand what he was singing about. Right. I could you know, really hear the sort of pain and emotion in his voice. And years later, I would revisit that song frequently. And it really is a song that has politicized me for many different reasons. Right. Because it's so melodic, because the construction of it is so beautiful, and because it's like sung with so much emotion. And it also just tells a story of chattel slavery and uh, mass incarceration and just the shameful state of racism in this country. And finally, what is your favorite political book? I'm going to choose a book that was published a couple of years ago and not a political book that I read in my college years. And that is Chantal Mouffe's For a Left Populism. Uh It was very helpful to me at the time and still is. And I refer to it often in this moment as I'm thinking of next steps for the political revolution, so to speak. It's a wonderful, very short volume that you can find on Amazon. It's only 94 pages or something. I, I recommend that all organizers order a copy of it. As long as they don't do it through Amazon, that's fine by me. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, let's start with Occupy Wall Street. How did you get involved in that? Occupy Wall Street. The honest answer is I responded to the hashtag call out that Adbusters put out and I wanted to know what it was all about. And so I showed up to the park with a few friends and on the morning of September 17th in 2011, I was a longtime reader of Adbusters and was curious and showed up and the rest is history. So it was hard to walk away after the first week became very clear that something sort of special was taking place. So what would you say are the biggest achievements and failures of Occupy Wall Street? Well, I mean, I think that because activists and radicals and organizers and everyday people were able to congregate in a space that was like held, and when I mean held, I meant like occupied, Mm -hmm. right? people were able to begin a dialogue and start to explore sort of what they'd been fighting for and how they ended up in the park to start these discussions. Because I think if you look back on like 
U.S. activism leading up to the Occupy Wall Street social movement, it had really been a lot of like single issue organizing, right? So you had like anti-war activists or you would have like nuclear activists or animal rights activists. But up until Occupy Wall Street, there had never really been an intersectional movement, right? Where like single issue activism became multi-issue activism. And what, what began to emerge was the narrative that there is an enemy class and that enemy class is the 1% or, you know, the 0.001%. And so is that class focus that you mentioned, would you say that is one of the significant differences with the anti-globalization movement that we had in the 1990s? No, because I think the anti-globalization movement, I mean, and I was a part of the anti-globalization movement. I was very young at the time. And so I participated in a lot of the demonstrations. I think that it was led by people who were hyper-focused on using a very short window of time to make the whole country understand what was happening. It's very difficult to sort of build a case against like capitalism. It's, it's very difficult, you know, period, you know, the organizers like around the world who were trying to, you know, create a lasting social movement didn't have enough time, frankly, to really fully flesh out their narrative. And also because it just didn't have the participation of other, you know, marginalized or oppressed groups particularly black and brown organizers who were not as much a part of like the anti-globalization movement as they have been, you know, sort of in this decade of like radical activism. Yeah. So I think that we have to kind of really examine that. And I don't think we have enough time to unpack it on, on this podcast. No. Um, you were also instrumental in Occupy Sandy, and I think this was one of the most positive progressive actions of recent times, but many non-US and younger listeners might not have heard about it. Can you tell us shortly what this group exactly did? Yeah, uh, Occupy Sandy sort of burst on the scene very quickly, uh, and then was also kind of tamped out by the state equally quickly, but it did in a very short amount of time achieve a lot. And so I'll try my best to sort of give you some background on, on what it was, what this collective was all about. Right. So the Superstorm Sandy, which hit the Northeast coastline, really devastated the Northeast coastline, um, prompted a response by um, a core group of former Occupy Wall Street organizers. I was one of them. We responded the day after, really, the storm hit by creating a sort of rapid response relief network. So that what we did was really we mobilized and trained volunteers across the state of New York mm -hmm. to participate in relief efforts around the state and also in places like Jersey and Connecticut because they were sort of part of the Northeast coastline. But the majority of the work took place in New York because we saw that the federal response would be inadequate. We knew that like they had failed to respond to Katrina adequately mm -hmm. and many thousands of people died because of that. We knew that we needed to take sort of matters into our own hands. And so that's what happened. It was a group of founding Occupy Wall Street came back together very quickly and created systems of relief response. And so we did everything from distribute supplies and food to, you know, families impacted most by the storm. Because, you know, you have to remember, like, New York was out of power, was mm -hmm. without power for weeks. Yeah. Parts of New York were without power for weeks on end. So we engaged in disaster relief work. You know, we did the job of the federal government of FEMA. And in fact, there are photos of FEMA being trained by Occupy Sandy activists. So those photos went very viral, you know, and, and you know, we kind of became like the darling of like the activism world. You know, it made all the sort of liberals take a closer look at like Occupy and say, oh, well, this is like a sanitized version of Occupy. They're not all, you know, street ruffians and they're not all hooligans or they're not all anarchists, like homeless anarchists, like living in the park. They're actually sane, responsible people who are very talented at like helping others. Like, and so there was a period where liberals really tried to co-opt Occupy Sandy. And they were effective because what ended up happening was Occupy Sandy failed to sort of build lasting organization. And eventually those recovery efforts were subsumed by city and state agencies. 
which then launch their own, you know, ridiculous bureaucracies that I think are probably still ill-equipped to handle any type of natural disaster or, in this moment, a global pandemic. Right. So Later, you became also involved in the 2017 Women's March and all the women's marches that day are still considered the largest one-day protest in U.S. history. And even later, marches were quite sizable, even if they received relatively little attention. What do you feel was achieved and what still needs to be achieved? The, the correct answer is long and complicated and would require like 600 pages right? in a book that would be taught in like women's studies classes all around the world. Um, I will say that uh, it was historical. That march was historical. As someone who'd been involved in like long time social movements, I mean, I'd really, my first demonstration was definitely an anti-globalization demo. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've really been involved since, you know, 1999. And I've participated in like countless protests, countless direct actions. And, you know, obviously, you know, during Occupy Wall Street was more of a leader and trainer in some of the really, uh, shall we say, imaginative uh, actions. Mm -hmm. So even for someone as jaded <laughs> as me, the Women's March, the first original Women's March on 2017, the day after Trump was inaugurated, was impressive even to me because we anticipated that there would be 500,000 people turning up to Washington, D.C., but there were 2 million, right. over 2 million. And around the world, there were 3.5 more million. I think the grand total was something like 5.5 million in, in a single day. So it was pretty phenomenal. But it was also the, the moment, right? Like yeah. it was also a repudiation of Trump and just this anger that this uh, monster was going to be the president. So it was pretty remarkable. And I think that like the work that the Women's March has done is significant in that it has really activated a, a whole new generation of very young women to discover for themselves what is, for better or for worse, like structural patriarchy or patriarchal capitalism. It's difficult, again, to be able to articulate it in a single episode of a podcast, but I think that, you know, the Women's March in 2017, that particular day of action really jolted, you know, the imaginations of a whole younger generation of women. And also, you know, it also really, you know, kind of made the men pay attention right. as well. And so there's a lot that is happening now that would not be happening if that social mood and again, it's a social movement, mm -hmm. um, had not occurred. Right. So, And again, the Women's March is decentralized, just like Occupy Wall Street was decentralized, right? Which you is also one of the things that has been at times criticized for and argued that had they had a clearer leadership or organization, both Occupy and the Women's March would have been more successful. What's your position on that? But what does that mean, though? That's always the same. That critique always comes from, like, institutionalists. That type of critique always, always comes from, like, uh, the academy or, like, liberal media institutions. It means, it means creating a bureaucracy is what it means. That's what it means. It means building institutions. It means having a figurehead that this media... But, but if you have world. a figurehead, then it's top-down. If you have a figurehead, then it's top-down and it's a campaign, you know, for an elected official. Why do you need to have one figurehead for a social movement? That's absurd. The argument that is being made, I guess, is we live in a highly mediatized world where the media often want to focus on one or a small group of leaders, of figureheads, and they get more airtime. But you argue that a social movement in and by itself doesn't need organizations or leaders to succeed. Well, I mean, I think it depends on how you define success. If you define success by the leader of your organization is getting a lot of media hits on CNN and is that successful? Or are you defining success by if the Women's March had not happened, we may not have elected the squad 
If Occupy Wall Street had not happened, the ascension of Bernie Sanders would not have normalized democratic socialism. It really depends on how you define success. And there's a lot of debate around that. And there's, you know, a lot of folks who would say that they would agree with me, especially those who are actually deeply embedded into the DNA of social movements. This is why an advertising agency can't snap their fingers and like produce an AOC, right? This is why, you know, marketing firm can't put together a cohort of like marketing geniuses and then all of a sudden come up with a campaign to elect a Stacey Abrams. But the tactics of organizers who are participating in these social movements could lead to the ascension of someone like a Stacey Abrams or um, an AOC. So what you create is, as a movement, is the breeding ground, right? Well, it's pressure. It's outside pressure. It's the will of the people. It's a mass movement. It's sending a strong signal to, you know, the ruling class and those that protect the ruling class, which are sort of our elected officials. And how do you keep that going? Well, I mean, I think we've really moved the the line over the last five years more than we have since the 60s. I think that with Bernie's recent, you know, stunning defeat, um, which we can get into later if you want to, it feels as if the movement has been set back a decade, but it actually really hasn't because what we have now is we have more radicals in office than ever before. Right. And it's not one lonely voice. It's like, Jesus, I mean, it's hundreds of loud voices now. Right. And right. I also think that you, to a certain extent, start to redefine what is radical, like things that, that are actually, let's say, old school social democratic, which in the neoliberal age have been redefined as radical, are now increasingly becoming seen as more common sense or... Sensible, right. Sensible, exactly. Yeah. Sensible. Yeah. But it really required sort of the felling of like Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, both very sort of able messengers. Because talk about figureheads. They both understood their position, which is that they were sort of avatars or spokespeople for the social movement. They both understood their position very well and were poised to take power, but were beaten by the ruling class. But it doesn't mean that it stops there. And I think that's the thing that gives them great unease. You know, I think right now we're living in a moment where the sort of global elite are really confused by their by the outcome, because really their machinations should have achieved a different result for them. And it isn't. And so they're very confused. And of course, all of this is exacerbated by impacts of COVID-19. Right. And I think an already longer kind of implosion of not just the neoliberal system, but the neoliberal promise, largely for the Great Recession. And you see that very strongly also in Europe, where the system is still there, but there are very few ideological defenders left. Well, their ideological defenders are the, I mean, certainly in America, the ideological defender of neoliberalism is Joe Biden, right? The people who are sort of propping up the Joe Biden campaign the architects of the Joe Biden campaign, the folks who are really kind of promising this return to normalcy are basically facing down this clear and present danger that nothing will be normal again because 150,000 people have died in America and because COVID is not contained. They know very well that they have a lot of work to do. And I'm not sure they're cut out to do the work. I mean, I think there's a lot of unknowns right now. Yeah, for sure. Mr. Sanders himself has been quite cooperative with and supportive of the Joe Biden campaign, and many of its its former advice and supporters are part of the unity task forces. Where does once again fit in this? You know, when you were following my work leading up to my agreeing to do this podcast, you were sort of seeing what we were doing with once again in reaction to the Sanders campaign folding and, you know, some members of its leadership kind of being more acquiescent to the sort of Biden campaign and us coming together to form a a new collective of organizers and activists and former staffers and advisors on the Sanders campaign to continue to fight for what Sanders was promising. 
So I think that you saw that, but I think what you probably didn't realize was that it was actually a very temporary project meant to help the senator collect enough delegates to influence the party's like platform and rules committee because he needed to reach a threshold of 1,200. And he had suspended his campaign, you know, before there were still like 27 states like left to vote. And so at that time, there were a large number of delegates to collect still. And then Sanders himself did not want to continue to engage in asking for votes in order to collect delegates. And so we thought we'd pick up the pieces and and do it for him. Unfortunately, we were not able to reach the 1200 delegate threshold. I think we, you know, we left off at like 1180 or something. I don't, I'm not sure of the exact number. And since then, the platform and rules committee have already voted. I can tell you that it didn't go our way, right? Like the DNC is as corrupt as ever, and they are as captured by the corporate overlords of America as ever. So they voted down Medicare for all, they voted in favor of keeping corporate PAC money inside the DNC. And so, you know, it's for better or for worse, really a hot mess. People behind once again are definitely continuing the work. More recently, one of the efforts that we've launched is a pledge for delegates to sign insisting and demanding that the DNC and the Democrats include Medicare for All into their party platform. And if they don't include it, we will vote against the platform during the convention. So far, 700 of Bernie's delegates have signed. So it's a significant number. It's actually a majority of his delegates have already signed this pledge. So, you know, when the time comes to vote, they're going to say no, unless Joe Biden, Joe Biden and the Democrats include Medicare for All. Again, this is very, very, very like process oriented. And your listenership may not understand anything that I'm saying. Let's gift them some. Yeah, it's, it's just very, well, it's just like very anodyne, you know, like this shit is extremely anodyne and like not interesting for people. But like, that's what it is. Like, this is democracy. This is what democracy looks like, so to speak. So it's a joke. So looking forward, looking to the direct future, what would be the biggest challenge for U.S. progressives if Biden wins the presidential election? We know that Joe Biden will likely defeat Donald Trump because Donald Trump has made such a mess of the economy and response to COVID-19 you know, leading to 150,000 deaths, which will surely go up and, you know, we'll surely see like staggering numbers by November. So I think that like right now, most American voters are thinking a lot about kind of going over the cliff. I think people are thinking about like, you know, what will happen to them after the unemployment runs out today. They're very concerned. They're worried about cost of living, the cost of health care, the cost of food, the cost of child care. All of these things are compounded by COVID-19. And that is what like Americans are thinking about right now. Do I think that people will go to the polls in November and vote for Joe Biden? Sure. Do I think that Donald Trump's base is loyal to him and they'll also vote for him in November? Yes, I do. Is there a possibility that Donald Trump will delay the elections? The institutionalists say no, but Donald Trump's Department of Justice says maybe, right? Right. There's a lot of unknowns. I think August is going to be very revealing, and I think September will even be more revealing. But where do you see the future of progressive politics? Now that Bernie is not going to be the next president, what is the strategy? I think that there'll be more progressives elected to office than ever before. So I think that like you're going to see in 2022 and 2023 and 2024 that there'll be a lot of like very interesting campaigns and that a lot of these radical activists who are going to actively be seeking elected office will be elected. Certainly here in New York, where I am based, the one sort of Republican dominated like state legislature is now overrun with Democratic Socialists. I think that the next step will be for democratic municipalism, radical municipalism, which I think, means, which means like electing socialist mayors and city council people. So imagine like Barcelona and Camus, but everywhere. Because if you control the budget, you control a lot. 
And city councilors and mayors actually do have significant budgets, unless, of course, the Joe Biden administration decides not to send any money down the line, you know. Or, God forbid, second Trump administration. Sure, exactly. I mean, then, I don't know. I mean, if, if he's reelected for a second term, and that's a possibility. I'm not, like, foolish enough to assume that this is a sure bet for Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden is a weak candidate. He doesn't have a base. He's not energizing young people at all. He's not actively courting Bernie's grassroots base. And in fact, he's alienating Bernie's grassroots base. I think he's relying on segments of the electorate that may not be as reliable as he thinks they are. And Trump is, you know, doing everything he can to, you know, obfuscate the truth to a low information electorate. That always is very effective as a political tactic, you know. I'm watching very closely. I can see that, like, he's making moves, right? He's saying, I'm going to give you more stimulus money. Forget about, you know, what Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are not doing this weekend. Mm -hmm. Just trust me when I say that, like, I'm going to get your back. I've got you. Economy will rise again. He'll just keep at that, you know, and then potentially, and I don't know, but it's certainly in line with, I think, what they're thinking is some kind of, like, direct payment to the American people by executive order, I don't know, maybe September. That could also dramatically change minds. I'm living in Georgia. I'm not at all that certain that Biden wins. <laughs> so um, That's right. Finally, what do you think is the most important misperception about the legacy of Occupy Wall Street? You know, I think they're all true. I think that like my response is, you know, think what you want. And I don't think anybody cares. I, th- I don't think anybody who participated in Occupy Wall Street, either as a participant or as like an organizer, really cares about what you think. Like the work has got to be done and the work will continue regardless of whether or not, you know, you, the viewer, you, the consumer, you know, you, the passive consumer, has a notion that Occupy Wall Street were led by, you know, kind of, you know, homeless anarchists, right? That is what a lot of ruling class think. But it's really the ruling class who has no sense of law and order. It's a projection. (laughs) Okay. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Winnie. Of course. Thank you for having me. It was an enjoyable conversation. I look forward to listening to it. If you want to know more about Winnie Wong, you can follow her on Twitter at at WaywardWinnieFred. And you can find more information about the Once Again Pack on the website, onceagainpack.com. If you like this episode, please rate and subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of Rini Melody Baker. I'm seeing down the dunker, playing with his beard. No wonder that Cass Capital turned out a little weird.